Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, Matt. Hey. And maybe... Where's, where's Paul? And uh, Where's Paul? Oh, no. yeah. Uh, I forgot to tell him we were recording tonight. Oh. Oh, no. He's out tending to his clouder of cats. Probably both a little bit true, but I, I did forget to tell him that we were recording tonight. At least that's what he says. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we, we missed Paul on this show, but uh, he prob- is a clouder a real thing? I think it is. I looked it up on Google, so it must be. What What's the definition of a clouder of cats? It says a clouder is a group of cats. I looked for a flock of cats and it came up clouder. It's kind of spelled like chowder, but yes. with an L. But we don't eat the cats. <laughs> Okay, uh, so that's, Stuart, uh, that's way off. maybe you can maybe you can uh, explain the episode tonight. <clears throat> yes, it has something to do with eating, just not eating cats. So, given how much emphasis that I personally, as a physician, put on the physician-patient relationship and affecting true lifestyle choices, I'm so excited to have been given the opportunity. Actually, you you, you basically told me to write this one, <laughs> to write this episode on uh, obesity. Despite how significant of an impact obesity has, many physicians were still at a, at a loss of how to uh, simply approach the uh, um, the disease in general, let alone how to have any significant, effective, long-lasting, meaningful outcome. So to that end, we've invited our distinguished colleague, Dr. Timothy Garvey. He's a professor of medicine and chair of the Department of Nutrition Sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Garvey earned his MD from St. Louis from St. Louis University in 1978 and completed residency in internal medicine at Barnes Hospital, Washington University in 1981. He then was a clinical fellow in endocrinology at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center and the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. He subsequently held faculty posts at University of California, San Diego, at Indiana University School of Medicine, where he was an associate and full professor, and also at the University of South Carolina, and now the University of Alabama, where he's been since 2004. He is a very active member in the in ACE and was the lead author of the evidence-based ACE Obesity Management Guidelines in 2016, which we will be linking to in our show notes. Dr. Garvey is a national leader in the development of medical models for the management of, obes- of obes- obesity and diabetes prevention. He has achieved international recognition for his research in metabolic, molecular, and genetic pathogenesis of insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Thus, he is ridiculously qualified to be speaking with us on this topic of obesity, and I think this episode is going to be really helpful for everybody who has struggled about how to manage obesity or even just how to bring it up with your patients. So without further ado, here is Dr. Timothy Garvey, who he prefers to be called Tim, actually. That was a mouthful. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, Hi, Matt. Stuart. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. And with us is Dr. Garvey, who has asked us to call us Tim, which oh. uh, we appreciate. So, uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm excited to uh, discuss uh, uh, obesity with you guys tonight. We're, we're happy to have you on the show. And this is a topic that we've been wanting to do for quite a while. I know that uh, 
we have you for about a half hour here, so I want to get right to it um, with our actually our our upfront questions that we like to ask everybody. So, what uh, what is a great book that you can recommend to us or our audience that's helped you in your career or in life? You know, um, I was so shell shocked after uh, my first my internship ended. Uh, being on call every second and third night. I, I don't think they do that these days, Ooh. but uh, I took a vacation to the south of France and I'm sitting on the beach and I opened up the book called House of God, <laughs> which it just it just paralleled my experience so exactly. And I just it, it just was so therapeutic to read that book. I was ready for my uh, residency uh, then. So that book helped me out a lot, I would say. I was wondering who the first guest was to mention that book. Yeah, I I did. Oh. I was actually afraid to read that book because of everything I had heard about it. And uh, once I read it, I was I, I read it after residency, and I, I I think I could have handled reading it before. I don't think it would have ruined anything. It might have actually helped me, but I think some people are mixed. <laughs> no, it was it was it's a fun read, and I just uh, it just kind of helped me with a little catharsis, and uh, uh, it helped me a lot. So I was ready to go after that. Oh, so we're kind of talking on the topic of wellness. What do you do outside of your job in medicine to promote your own wellness? Well, I uh, I jog uh, regularly. I run about three to three and a half miles uh, three days a week, and then belong to the Y. So I do uh, some you know moderate weightlifting, kind of just you know you know eight to ten muscle groups, you know. Uh, one or two reps, uh, one or two a uh, series of reps, uh, two days a week. So that's kind of in the literature, you know. Uh, aerobic and resistance exercise together are better than any one alone. When you, I, I have metabolic syndrome, so um, I uh, I have insulin resistance. So I, I uh, even though I'm my BMI is only about twenty five point five, I'm still insulin resistant. So I want to kind of keep uh, my insulin sensitivity up. And so that's how I do it with uh, physical activity. So do you, do you happen to know uh, Dr. Robert Centaur? He's currently working on his 5K run. He, uh, he works at UAB. <laughs> <laughs> You're obsessed with his running, Stuart. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, did you say Dr. Centaur? That's right. Yeah, Dr. Centaur. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do know him. He's uh He's real active in uh, medical education here at UAB. Yeah, that's right. We we just recently talked to him on the air not too long ago. We were talking about his uh, 5K runtime. He, he's down to 27 minutes. Oh, <laughs> oh I see. Okay. Uh, he's faster than Stuart. That's why Stuart is Stuart's tracking him. <laughs> I guess Stuart, for some reason, even though there's a bit of an age difference there, Stuart wants to uh, be faster than him. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that says. Okay, well, I'm so. not built for speed. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm built for endurance, not well, speed. I'm, that's uh, that's fantastic that you're getting out there, especially the topic that we're going to be talking about right. tonight, which is obesity. So before I, I think we should just move on to the main topic, uh, especially in the interest of of your time here. So. Yeah. So one one of the things that uh, that we all know is that obesity itself is a humongous uh, uh, population health concern, especially in the United States. Is there any way that you can put this in perspective for our listeners? So, in, in other words, how does obesity in general stack up with, say, coronary artery disease when you assess the impact on morbidity and mortality? Yeah. Well, first of all, we all know that obesity is not an uncommon disease. You know, one third of America has obesity, defined by BMI. 30 and above, and another third has overweight defined by BMI 25 to 29.9. 
And this excess adiposity, of course, places patients at increased risk of a number of uh, complications, um, including uh, what, what I'd call cardiometabolic disease type of complications. And you mentioned one of them, uh, coronary artery disease and, and vascular disease. You know, obesity is so interconnected with some of these um, complications that it's hard to separate the impact of obesity from the impact of its complications, whether those complications are diabetes or heart disease or osteoarthritis or sleep apnea or any one of a number of other things. So uh, it's just a, a disease process that is so uh, intertwined with its complications, it's hard to separate out what what to attribute morbidity and mortality to. But um, obesity is at the root cause of a lot of these problems. So you had mentioned the different categories of uh, you know overweight and obesity based on BMI goals. Is there any evidence to suggest that BMI goals should differ among different ethnicities? There sure is, uh, particularly in, in Southeast Asians, uh, both living in Southeast Asia and uh, people and, and Asians in, in the United States as well. You know, they will, I did tour India not too long ago, and they will go from a BMI of 23 to 25, still very lean by our standards, but they'll collect a lot of that fat in their intra-abdominal compartment and develop the full metabolic syndrome. Uh, with subsequent higher rates of diabetes. So um, there's been a lot of kind of epidemiological work to suggest that really uh, you people with 20 BMI of 23 and above uh, should be considered as having excess adiposity, uh, that is overweight or obesity. So uh, you do have to kind of lower your BMI standards for uh, Southeast Asian uh, folks. Is that regardless of the generation? Yes, I mean this is this is a, a current epidemiology. Uh, uh, there was a lot of good studies done in India and China now, uh, as well as Korea and Japan. So, um, you know, I think we know a little bit less about what BMI to use uh, people that uh, Asians that have been living in the United States for a while. But we all need to be aware that they are at risk of cardiometabolic disease complications, that is, diabetes and heart disease. Uh, at lower levels of BMI than the general population. How do you, in particular, how, how do you bring up or start to uh, bring up the topic of, of weight loss with your patients? This is such an excellent question. You know, um, I, you, you don't want to kind of fat shame people. You just right. want to, you, you really, you ask their permission. Is it okay if we discuss weight uh, and the impact that it's having on your health. You know, the focus is on health. We want to improve health. It's not just to lose weight for the sake of losing weight. We want to uh, we want to talk about obesity in terms of its impact on health and intervene uh, not to achieve some cosmetic goal, right. but to uh, improve the health of your patient. So I, I just ask for permission. Uh, and some patients will, are ready for that. Some patients are not. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll ask again uh, in subsequent visits. Uh, but I, I think it's something we shouldn't ignore. ignore. Uh, you know, if you had a patient come in with a blood pressure of 155 over 98, you're going to do something about it. You're going to talk to your patient about that. Or if your LDL cholesterol is 175, you're going to talk to your patient about that. There's no difference with obesity. Uh, it's, it's something we, we need to kind of address with our patients. 
Um, but but patients have to be ready for it. I, I wanted to I wanted to mention something here, a mistake that I've made, which is stuff I like to point out on the air because uh, <laughs> I like to get my guilt out. I've said to patients, ask them about their weight without first having checked their chart to look. Uh. So someone maybe they were three thirty, now they're two hundred thirty pounds. To me, they look okay. Maybe this person could lose a little weight, but they uh, this this was a real case. A gentleman had lost a hundred pounds, wow. had kept it off, was walking ten thousand steps a day. And I should have probably been congratulating him like, hey, you've kept this, you've been down to 230 pounds for f- the last five years. Like, how did you do it? Are you still doing these things? And um, so I, I have a number of patients um, where I've almost made the same mistake. I've remembered to look and they've actually been very happy and it's it's led to a good discussion with them, what they're doing, how they're struggling to to maintain what they have. Well, you bring up a good point. You, you do need to kind of ask them where they've been, where they've come from, what they've done about this, because the health benefits really, what translates into health benefits is percent weight loss. So if you lose 10% of your body weight, that uh, does you so much good in terms of preventing complications or ameliorating weight-related complications right. that the patient may have. So you could start off at a real high BMI, and lose 10% of your body weight, you're still going to be in the obese category. But that patient has done a whole lot of good in terms of promoting their health. So uh, I think I guess you've learned a lesson with that patient. <laughs> yes, yes, and yeah. definitely definitely apologized heavily. Well, you mentioned you mentioned yeah. the percent body weight lost, and when when you're trying to help patients develop their goals, do you find it helpful to quantify it as a percentage of body weight, or do you do you, how do you do that? Well, I tell you, I um, <clears throat> I was uh, uh, involved in uh, uh, writing up uh, uh, evidence-based comprehensive uh, clinical practice guidelines for obesity that was recently published by the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. And our approach to obesity is, again, to promote health. And what does that mean? That means to, uh, preventing or treating weight-related complications. And different complications, uh, there's a dose response in effect for how much weight loss you need to achieve to improve a complication that varies uh, according to, uh, that varies as a function of the complications. For example, if you want to prevent diabetes in somebody who has metabolic syndrome or prediabetes, 10% weight loss is so is highly effective, will reduce progression to diabetes by 80%. You could lose more than that, but you don't. It doesn't translate into any more diabetes prevention. So it's kind of a threshold. You want to get to 10% weight loss. Other things like your hemoglobin A1C, your triglycerides and lipids, your blood pressure. Um, kind of, you get to three to five percent weight loss. You can start having an effect, and, and the more, the better. So there's not a threshold. It's just the more, the better. Um, other things like sleep apnea. You know, there's no approved medications for sleep apnea. You know, we put patients on CPAP. Many of our patients are non-compliant because it's it's kind of a pain to kind of put this device on at night. Um, but 10% weight loss will really improve your uh, apnea hypopnea index uh, and improve symptoms as well. So, um, you know, you have to kind of look at what what complications the patient has or is at risk of and kind of decide on how aggressive you want to be with your weight loss therapy on that basis. Again, we're treating a disease. 
we're trying to improve health, uh, not just kind of get weight off for its own sake or uh, get to a certain level that uh, that achieves some kind of cosmetic result. So I, I kind of want to move into um, at least the initial stages of treatment. Um, when I'm talking to my patients about weight loss, we oftentimes go right into diet and exercise. And, and while I tell my patients that these are important, oftentimes what's more important for weight loss is to understand what you're doing when you're not eating and when you're not exercising. You know, if you're going to go out and run, you know, three to five miles a day and then you're going to sit down and do nothing all day long, you're probably not going to have any effective weight loss. At least this is what I tell them. This is what I believe. Um, to what extent, what percentage of body weight can people realistically hope to lose and keep off with diet and exercise alone versus some small tweaks like standing at work, uh, five minutes of ex- exercise per hour, taking the stairs, simple things that we can all change in our day-to-day activity, day-to-day routine. Right. So you're really not, not talking about voluntary exercise. You're talking about reducing sedentary activity. Absolutely. Um, which, is, which is important. You know, the American College of Sports Medicine, I think their guidelines are um, – you shouldn't have any sustained sedentary activity greater than 90 minutes. You need to interrupt it by uh, doing some walking um, or, or any other form of activity. So that, that is an important part of, of the physical activity prescription. Uh, that's the way I look at it as a prescription that we give to patients um, that prescribes uh, some voluntary exercise. It doesn't have to be, you know, running marathons, whatever the patient uh, is comfortable with and, right. and what aligns with their personal preferences, as well as addressing uh, reduction of sedentary activity, as you uh, just suggested. Right, right. Uh, so how how effective are devices like the Garmin watch or other devices that kind of motivate you to get up and walk, get up and uh, stay more active throughout the day? Have we fa- found that those are, that there's any evidence to suggest that uh, we can reduce the complications from obesity by using these kinds of uh, technological devices? Yes, there's a, there's a number of randomized clinical trials using uh, these uh, different interventions. You know, a, a successful lifestyle intervention inc- includes three components. One is um, <clears throat> is uh, nutrition uh, and a healthy meal plan that's delivered in kind of a reduced calorie format. Two is physical activity. And three is a number of kind of behavioral interventions. Um, and one of those behavioral interventions is self-monitoring. Just writing down what you eat or how much you weigh or what your physical activity was, just the patient doing the act of self-recording um, has been shown to be uh, very effective in its own, just in an isolated uh, perspective in terms of achieving uh, kind of uh, clinic, good clinical outcomes. So that's, that's helpful. One of the, sir, one of the questions we we normally ask is, is there a specific app or, or journal or is something, some resource you give to patients to track those things? Yeah, there's a number of these. Uh, you know, I, the one I find uh, helpful is called Lose It. It's a free app. You can get kind of a Cadillac version with a minimal cost, but, uh, just the free Lose It, you know, you can track, you just enter what food you eat. Uh, and it kind of records that and calculates the calories. Um, you you kind of set your goal. Uh, it lets you know how you're doing in terms of uh, uh, achieving certain calorie in uh, type of uh, goals, and then uh, it helps you track your weight as well. Um, <clears throat> so just an example of a of an app you can use with a smartphone to uh, kind of help with the self recording of food intake. And 
I know that we have you for limited time. We do have some questions we wanted to ask you about medical therapy, but Stuart, any, is that where you want to go next or did you have other yeah, stuff? I, I just want an overall gestalt. Um, so in, in terms of percentages, what percentage of body weight could someone hopefully and realistically hope to keep off with say diet, exercise, medications, bariatric surgery, specifically those four? Right. Well, you know, the, all of these studies, What one thing that's evident is there's a lot of individual variation. Any intervention you want to uh, uh, try, there's a lot of individual variation. So when you talk about mean weight loss with these different interventions, you have to take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people losing more, a lot of people losing less. But um, a well-structured uh, lifestyle intervention in most studies, uh, you can achieve a 5 to 10% weight loss. Uh, when you add uh, weight loss medications, you can achieve uh, a greater than 10% weight loss in most patients. Um, and of course, with the, depending on the type of bariatric surgery, a Rouen-Y gastric bypass, you're up to maybe 30, 35%. Uh, with the sleeve gastrectomy, you know, about 30%, about the same. Lap band, which is being done less often, uh, maybe 15 to 20%. So, um, you know, those are the three modalities of treatment, lifestyle, medications, and bariatric surgeries, and also now several devices that have been introduced. But, uh, you know, we need to kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, individualize care depending on what our, our clinical goals are in terms of how we use those three treatment modalities. And in order to uh, – our colleague, Dr. Bersabi, who uh, – uh, was hoping to join us tonight. Um, she, she is like excellent at motivating her patients to do things. Um, are there tools or resources that you have or tips you can give us and our listeners on how we can better motivate patients to follow some of these non-pharmacologic, uh, therapies since a lot of the medications have side effects and, and there's a rebound when patients stop taking them often? Yeah. Um, so motivating patients, you know, this this is an individualized. Uh, you really need to individualize your approach, uh, and you know, it really, it really requires a team approach to engineer a lifestyle change. I mean, a physician, if you got, you know, ten patients in the waiting room and you got fifteen minutes to see each patient, you you're not going to have enough time to really do this right. I think um, what's worth their weight in gold is a, a dietitian. Not just any dietitian, but a dietitian that's been schooled in kind of weight loss interventions. Uh, and just working with a dietitian like that can be very helpful. But, you know, I, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit here. I think, you know, lifestyle can get weight off. But as you alluded to already, you know, there's weight regain uh, mm -hmm. often. After about a year, patients start regaining weight. And it's not the patient's fault. It's obesity is a disease. Once you lose weight loss, there's a whole host of pathophysiological mechanisms that kick into gear that drive weight regain back up to that high equilibrium weight the patient started with. Hormones that make you eat more go up. Hormones that make you eat less go down. Your resting energy expenditure goes down, which favors a positive energy balance. Your, um, your, even your psychological food preferences orient to more calorie-dense food. So all of these all these things are going on and driving that weight regain, and this is what patients have to fight against. So that's why weight loss medications can be very helpful. They kind of work on these 
these interactions of, of, of hormones and, and the hypothalamus, the satiety center and the hypothalamus to kind of help patients uh, adhere to a lifestyle program and uh, reduce calorie diet. So they, they fight against these pathophysiological mechanisms and that we just have to kind of bring those on board to help our patients more often, I believe. Sir, are you aware of any ongoing trials or evidence to suggest that a fecal transplant could potentially prevent the weight gain that you typically see at one year? Well, they are doing, I, I, I know some colleagues in Belgium that are doing this work. I'm not a big uh, fan of this. I, I'm pretty pretty kind of jaundiced view, if you will, uh, of that approach. You know, they um, there there is some evidence in rodents that this can be done successfully, but in human studies, I, I think we've got a long ways to go. So I, I guess the... the... At the deeper part of the question there is, what can you do to fix the, these problems with, I think this was highlighted, there was studies in the past, in 2016, with these Biggest Loser contestants who, who regained a lot of the weight back, and they, they yeah. had a lot of these physiologic changes you're talking about. Do we understand, yeah. is there a way to stop these changes? It almost sounds like the set point, like they've been obese and their body wants to bring them back to it. Is there a way to avoid that? You've described that exactly right, uh, and as, as I alluded to, I mean medications are, are the are, can help with that. You know, if we understood what what the, the molecular mechanisms that created that set point and how to modify that, uh, well, you'd win the Nobel Prize. But uh, you know, we don't have a good understanding of that. Some of that, I believe, is set even in utero. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we, to help our patients out, we, and that's why they, patients regain weight when you stop the medication, um, because the medications are work to kind of working to blunt those mechanisms, but it's, the disease is still there. Uh, just like if you take somebody off their antihypertensives or off their anti-diabetic medications. So it's a chronic disease like all of these others, and we really need to commit ourselves to kind of long-term patient follow-up. Um, the problem with these medications, and there's there's five uh, uh, medications approved by the FDA for uh, chronic weight management, is that we have, for at least most of them, we only have like two years worth of clinical trial data. We really, the most, they've only been approved since about 2012, so we don't have a long-term experience with these, and we need to generate some some clinical knowledge there in, in terms of how to use these drugs effectively over the long term. Can we briefly go through some of the drugs and just um, which ones you think maybe a general internist or a, a medical resident should be become comfortable with during training? Yeah, I think um, I, th I think these all of these drugs can be used in a primary care format and uh, internal medicine uh, residents and internal and, and primary care doctors. Um, it does require kind of you know spending some time, some CME, kind of learning about these drugs. They all work through different mechanisms. They all have different kind of cautions and, and side effect profiles. And to really individualize therapy optimally, it's good to kind of have a feel for all of these medications. You know, it's there's not a million of them. There's five right now. One is Orlistat, which inhibits fat absorption in the gut. That's been around for a while. Um, the newer ones are uh, ones called, Lur I'm using the generic names here, Lorcaserin, which uh, blunts... Uh, uh, blunts uh, the appetite at the level of the hypothalamus, so blunts appetite. 
Um, there's a combination medication that includes both topiramate and phentermine, uh, low doses, uh, that's probably the most effective. Um, another medication is another combination of naltrexone and bupropion, another kind of combination medicines that we're, we use for other purposes, but together they synergize to increase weight loss. Um, uh, our loraglutide, our GLP-1 receptor agonist we use for diabetes at higher doses causes more weight loss. So there's a higher three milligrams a day that have been approved by the FDA for, for a weight loss indication. Um, have I got them all there? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think so. Yeah. And I think the ones that, um, since in interest of time, that I would like to focus on then would be the bupropion and naltrexone because that one I, I've never used and the uh, phentermine and topiramate, because I know there's some concerns, especially with the phentermine component of that. So can you maybe just give us yeah. the basics of how to use each of those meds and sort of how often you're bringing patients back to, to monitor when, when they're on those medications? Yes. Um, the side effects, I guess, was the first issue there is um, the, the phentermine, topiramate, you know, uh, you can have some side effects from either either one of those drugs. The phentermine is kind of a, a sympathomimetic, so you can get some insomnia, some dry mouth. The topiramate is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, so you can get some tingling in the fingertips. You get a abnormal taste to carbonated beverages, kind of a tinny taste. It's called uh, discusia. It's a formal name. But, um, you know, these, these are really pretty easily managed. They occur early on with treatment and then get better over time. Um, I think uh, with the uh, with the uh, bupropion naltrexone, nausea, you know, you have to start at a lower dose and build up week by week. Uh, the, the naltrexone is associated with the, to minimize the nausea. Um, uh, but again, a pretty well-tolerated medication. I think um, you do have to be careful about, uh, you know, Topiramate, uh, I mean, bupropion rather lowers the seizure threshold, so you don't want to use that in patients with a seizure disorder. Now, now Trexone is a mu opioid antagonist, so if people require opioids for pain control, you can't use that. So that's why it's important to kind of understand, you know, how to use all of these medications to optimize therapy the best. But those two medications probably, uh, with the uh, high-dose liraglutide, those three uh, probably have greater potency for weight loss than the others. And sir, for for me, having trained at a program uh, where we were prescribing mostly off the $4 formulary at Walmart or the local drugstore, uh, something like getting these medications, phentermine and topiramate, at least the combination pill was very expensive. Do you recommend or is it in your practice, do you, do you prescribe them separately sometimes if that's cheaper? Well, uh, single-dose phentermine is approved for short-term treatment by the FDA. We don't have long-term safety data on phentermine, even though it was approved in 1959 or so. Hmm. It's been around for a while. Even um, the combination pill isn't is, – are you saying even the combination isn't approved for long-term? Is there a limit to the, the how The combination long? is. Okay. The combination – the highest dose of phentermine, there's much lower doses in that combination pill. And they, we do have, uh, you know – one-year, two-year trials with, you know, careful safety assessment by an FDA-sanctioned trials there. But the single dose, higher dose, like 30 milligrams a day, uh, you know, we don't have long-term studies there. The FDA didn't require that back in the 50s and 60s. Okay. 
Is there a concern for abuse there with the with the fentermine? You know, I, I don't. In my experience, it's not really uh, an issue. I mean, it it, it does. Uh, it's, it's not like an amphetamine, although it does kind of pick you up a little bit. But it's uh, it's it's not it's not something that's really given to to, to abuse. Um, it is a Schedule Four drug, however, uh, so you do have to kind of write out your prescription. Um, and it's it's also a schedule four in with the combination as well um so uh you know you just have to take that into account but um these drugs aren't high, aren't addictive let me put it that way i think really the for for me the big the big uh problem in prescribing them has been number one cost and then number two just lack of familiarity so maybe we can get over the familiarity part here um, when you, if you were going to start someone on the fentermine topiramate combination pill, what, uh, how often would you be bringing them back? And is there anything else we need to do? You told us the side effects. Is there anything other considerations, um, dosing wise that, that we should know about? Well, they, they, they have what's called an initiation dose, which is, um, <clears throat> uh, lower doses of both of the medicines in the combination. You do that for two weeks. And then you graduate up to the treatment dose, which is about twice the um, twice the, the initiation dose, uh, and it's one pill in the morning. And uh, uh, then the treatment dose is usually usually achieve your goals there. Uh, um, you know the the FDA has what's called an off what I call an off ramp. If you if after three months you don't get five percent or more weight loss discontinue the medication, try another one. Because um, uh, if you lose less than 5% at three months, the longer term weight loss is not uh, uh, favorable. But if you're over 5%, the chances that you will lose greater than 10% or, or 15% by a year are pretty good. Okay. So, um, you know, we don't want patients on medications unless it's doing them good. So that's that's the idea there. I like to bring patients back to what I see them uh, after initiating a medication like this. Uh, I like to have them come back at uh, one month, but at two weeks, I have my staff call them just to see how they're they're doing. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> then it's a, a variable. I will definitely see them at three months because that's when you have decide with the off ramp uh, assessment whether you whether they've lost that five percent or not. Um, and then after that, you know, some patients require, you, you have a sense that they require more face-to-face -face contact, uh, need more support. Others, no. But uh, I think uh, for the first year, every three months uh, is uh, is pretty important. Um, and then at that first month as well. But, I, you know, my staff will will contact them at different times or they might come in to talk to the dietitian. Uh, or we like to have some patients come in at intervals to, re to for their weight check and this sort of thing. Uh, so it's just it's variable. I wanted to clarify something you said about the you said that you can with the medications you can lose over ten percent of body weight. Is that when they're combined? Is that by themselves, or is that all only if they're combined with non pharmacologic interventions as well? Yeah, all of these medications are an adjunct to lifestyle therapy, a lifestyle intervention. Because remember, if they're blunting appetite, they're helping the patient adhere to a reduced calorie meal plan. If you don't put them on the reduced calorie meal plan, you're, you're not going to get as much weight loss. Your outcomes are going to be not as good. So um, a lifestyle uh, intervention is should be there for everybody. 
uh, and then medication should be added when you need that extra weight loss in order to improve health. For example, in somebody with weight-related complications or somebody who's really struggling with, with a lifestyle program and they need some help. Um, so they have to be used alone. In trials, were these medications um, combined with lifestyle and when they reported the percent body weight loss, was is that percentage lost uh, kind of the combination of like standard therapy, which would include you know, lifestyle plus the medication? Right. So in these clinical trials, the study design was pretty uniform. Everybody gets put on a lifestyle intervention. And then patients are randomized to either placebo or active drug. Uh, so um, you, you look at the placebo subtracted weight loss uh, to get the uh, efficacy of the drug itself because the intensity of the lifestyle intervention might vary from study to study. So when you look at that placebo-subtracted weight loss, the fentramine-topiramate gave you about 9% additional weight loss. Um, the high-dose loraglutide and bupropion naltrexone may be about 6%. Lorcasrin and Orlistat may be a little less, 4%. Um, so uh, you, whatever, whatever weight loss you achieve through the lifestyle alone, uh, you get more bang for your buck putting the patient through that lifestyle intervention when you add the medication. So, so Tim, I, I think we have just a couple of more questions before we want to ask you what your take-home points are. Um, I, I've got one question that popped up while we were talking, while, I, while you guys were talking about the medication-specific questions, and that's uh, something pretty rudimentary, and that is uh, the average patient population or the, the average age of the patient population that we take care of in our clinic is 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 kind of advanced. So we're talking in the range of around 70 years or older for some, for many of our patients. At what age would you consider not using these medications for weight loss? Yeah, I think uh, when you get 70 and above, we really have very little data uh, in, as regards to uh, weight loss interventions. Okay. Um, the, and I, I think you have to be very careful. Uh, the ACE guidelines that I mentioned earlier does address this. I think you really have to have very specific disease-related goals if you're going to engineer a weight loss program in somebody with 70 years or older. Right. Um, for example, uh, you know, improving diabetes or, um, uh, or if somebody has a lot of kind of disability and trouble getting around. Because um, you have to be careful of, of sarcopenia, you know, mm -hmm. if, if patients have kind of uh, muscle wasting and, and muscle dysfunction, uh, the weight loss could make that worse, Right. Uh, for example. And osteoporosis, uh, you know, um, we always lose a little bone mass with weight loss because the body has to carry around less weight. Uh, so you just have to kind of think of a few other issues uh, with the elderly, but we don't have a lot of data. So I, I, I tend to do that very cautiously. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, so I, I work in a largely geriatric clinic and right. I, it comes up at least a couple times a week where I'm, I'm in the a room, usually with an elderly female telling me she wants to lose weight. <laughs> and I look at her BMI and maybe it's 26. And I say, listen, I understand you want to lose weight, but I'm worried that you're going to lose too much muscle mass. You're going to be more likely to fall if yeah. you, uh, if you lose any more weight where you're going to, because you're going to lose muscle and fat. So exactly. I, I tell them. I agree. Maybe don't try not to gain anymore, but let's maintain this weight so we can maintain your muscle mass. I think that's really good advice for a lot of patients. So did you have any other questions, Matt? 
I don't. I, I think take if we could get your take-home points, Tim, that would be great for our audience, and, and we'll let you go on your way. Yeah, so typically we ask for just three take-home points. What what three take-home points do you think would be important for a general internist to know about uh, obesity and weight loss? Well, one, I think we really have to think of obesity as a disease, not a uh, lifestyle choice. Patients don't decide, well, I'm going to keep eating till my BMI is 35 and I'm going to stop there. It's not a cognitive process. It's a, it's a, it's a biologically driven process. And in the case of obesity, a pathophysiologically driven uh, process. So, uh, and I think we're, we're in the middle of kind of a cultural transition in the lay public and healthcare professionals that regard, used to regard obesity as a lifestyle choice, tell our patients, oh, go lose some weight and come back. Uh, when you've lost some weight type of thing. Uh, but that doesn't work. It's just not scientifically valid. Uh, two, I think, um, you know, we have, we have, we shouldn't be afraid to use weight loss medications to help our patients. Um, you know, cause it's, it's tough because of the, the pathophysiological nature of the disease is it's tough to maintain weight loss from lifestyle. Uh, over a long period of time without some pharmacologic help. And three, we're using weight loss really as a tool to improve health, and that means preventing or improving weight-related complications. Uh, so those would be three things. And um, again, we should, you know, we're, the problem we've already talked to us about cost is there's lack of access uh, and coverage uh, for many of these medications and, and lack of coverage and compensation for for lifestyle intervention programs. Uh, it's changing slowly as we come to better know uh, the impact that obesity has on the nation's uh, public health, uh, but the progress is slow, um, but hopefully that will accelerate. Um, I believe it is, uh, and we uh, will have an easier time kind of bringing these tools, these new tools to the table to help our patients. This this has been a pleasure talking to you, Tim. We are so thankful that you uh, took the time to, to be here with us tonight. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Tim. Well, thanks for asking me. I, I do get a little passionate about this. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an endocrinologist and, and uh, was a diabetologist uh, for most of my career. Uh, but in the last five years, I've really become more of kind of an obesity medicine guy particularly in my diabetes patients, I can get, you know, use weight loss to get the hemoglobin A1C down, improve the lipids, improve the blood pressure, improve the sleep apnea, improve quality of life, mobility, uh, with less need for diabetes medications. And I just find it's, it's a really, uh, and, and I use the weight loss medications in the diabetics, and it just, the clinical profile is pretty good. Uh, and so I've really become kind of passionate about weight loss therapy uh, in patients with a number of these uh, complications that can be helped by weight loss. Well, thank you. I want to let you get, get home. I know you're, you're still at the office there recording. All right, great. Well, thank you for asking me again. It was, it was fun talking to you. No, thank you so much. All right, sir. We'll be in touch. Bye. Good night. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So we want your input. Please subscribe to us, uh, rate and review the show on iTunes 
or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can give us your feedback, recommend a future topic, or tell us tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Otto. And I'm still Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Oh, by the way, could you please leave us a review? And good night.